Morning, Christ Church. Morning. It's fun to say that and uh, be here in the pulpit again. This is literally the first time that I've uh, preached since sabbatical, even though I've been back from sabbatical for a few weeks. And um, I just want to say a, a few words before we get into the sermon. First of all, last weekend was amazing. If you went to the Paris retreat, do you agree? Anybody here? Who went? Raise your hand if you went to the retreat. Yeah, it was so much fun. I mean, we had teaching that uh, really met us in the place. It feels like where we are everywhere, everybody right now, of how do, we, how do we hold out hope for joy when there's so much suffering? And such a strong word for, this, for, for us in this moment, but also uh, a lot of laughter, a lot of play, uh, a dance party, two concerts. I mean, we just, we, we did it all, packed into about 48 hours and um, had a great time. Um, another, uh, several things kind of converge this morning. Um, this is the kind of pivot point after a series preaching through Revelation. And um, the week before the parish retreat was the final sermon. Bill, Father Bill Walker uh, finished that out. Matt had done most of the preaching through that, an excellent series on Revelation. And I've heard that from so many of you. And if you missed that last one uh, two weeks ago by Father Bill, uh, go back and listen to that kind of like capstone of the of the series on Revelation. Um, today's All Saints Day, a lot coming together in one day today. And uh, we're going to have a moment. I've said something about this in uh, Cliff Notes, and, and we send that out on e newsletter on Fridays. Um, but let me just say this later in the service, we're going to have a moment of prayer, and the person who's leading the prayers is going to leave a moment of pause. Name a few, they will name a few people that, uh, that we have lost in our congregation in the past year, but also open it up for you to actually verbally speak out the name of anyone beloved to you who is now with the Lord. And it's just a moment where we realize that we, we are not alone. We are not the first people to walk this path, that there are the saints of God who've gone before us and they show us the way. They provide pathways and sign points. And uh, we, we are in the company of all the saints as we come in to worship and as we walk this Christian life. So we'll have a moment uh, of observance. Uh, throughout the prayers, you'll, you'll kind of feel it. You might already have woven through the servants, this service of uh, All Saints Day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have gathered us together, called us to yourself, filled us with your spirit, Put a love in our hearts for you and for each other and for this world. May we be faithful by your mercies, by your power in us, in all these relationships and callings. We pray in your name. Amen. Worship is the central task of the church. Let me say it again. Worship is the central task of the church. That might not seem obvious since there are some other things that are ac actually absolutely crucial to what it means to be the church. That You might say, well, what about community? Community is absolutely central, essential. But we are not just a social group for the sake of relationship and community. That's not all. We gather as a community around Jesus at the center. He brings us into community. He's the glue that holds together the community. 
Or someone might say, what about mission? What about the mission of the church? What about our call to tell others about the good news of God's love? What about the, the call to love our neighbors? What about the call to seek justice and do merciful acts and love this world? This, this too is absolutely critical. It's non-negotiable part of following Jesus. But our reason for being, our reason for being as a church transcends both of these. It transcends doing good. It transcends pointing others to the mercies of God. So our community and our mission, they both find their rationale in this. We believe that we are created by God in his image. And this God of love made us to show genuine care for each other as his community. And he made every single human being on this planet in the image of God, which means that they have inherent worth no matter what. And so we love them and seek their good no matter what. We love each other in community. We love the world in mission because, because he first loved us. And we love him back. Worship is the central task of the church. God is our center. He is our source. He is our goal. Some of you might have found us through our website. Some of you were invited by a friend, the different ways people make their ways into Christ Church. But if you came in through the website, or if you're a Christ Churcher, you've gone to the website, you have seen this. Let's put this on the screen. You've seen this right up at the top. It says this, this statement. We are called to be a people of changed lives in the heart of our city, mending our world for the praise of God's glory. We're called to be a people, community. Not just a people who are static, not just a people who coast, but a people who are being formed in the likeness of Christ. We're called to this place geographically, and we're called to mend our world and join God participate in this mending of the world. That's mission, community, mission. But why? What is the for statement? <laughs> For the praise of God's glory. This is true of the church. This was true of Israel as well. It's always been true of God's people. And you might have picked this up in our reading from Haggai this morning. So in this reading from Haggai, and I'm going to come back to it, and um, if, if you want, you can go ahead and Turn in your Bibles to it, or if you have the text, you can pull it out somewhere. But uh, I'm going to not refer specifically to it quite yet. Let me give you some of the backstory. Haggai is written as Israel is, uh, is returning from exile. They're back. They have been in, ex in exile in Babylonia. God has brought them back, and they have longed for that. And there's a lot of texts that we have, like lamentations, lamenting that exile and being stripped of their place of worship and the temple and and the good life in the good land, the promised land that God had given them. And they lament that, but now they're brought back. And the prophet Haggai has a message. Now, they came back in waves. It was not like everybody came back in once. And they came back by the thousands, tens of thousands. And so there was one group that came back. And they began to rebuild the temple. This is part of what they were charged to do as they went back. It was in ruins. They went back to their place, their this precious, beloved place of this meeting place with God was in rubbles. And they came back to that and began to rebuild. And they laid the foundation, 
But life was so hard. The crops were failing. The Persians were still surrounding them and were an oppressive force. Life was difficult, and they just got discouraged. It was too hard to keep on going and doing the work of rebuilding from the ruins. So then another wave of people come back from Babylonia, and they're in Jerusalem. And the charge here, again, is to pick up the work of rebuilding the temple. The temple was the heart and the soul of worship for Israel. The temple was the dwelling place of God. It's literally called his house at times. The tabernacle or the temple referred to as the house of God. And in our text in Haggai, that's how it's referred to, the house of God. It was where they went to meet with God, where he lived, where they went to worship him. God so desires to be with, to be among his people that he comes down to fill the temple with his glory, with his presence, where his people can come and meet with him there. They can have a session together. That's his desire, God and humanity. And this is worship. So the second group returns, they come back to Jerusalem, and God sends the prophet Haggai to tell them, uh, give them a message to encourage them, to inspire them to pick up the work that was abandoned, where there was nothing but a foundation laid, and finish this work out for the sake of their worship of the holy God, the rebuilding of the temple. So as we look at this text, there's two main themes that we're going to look at. Two main themes. First, sometimes, this is not the first one, sometimes meeting with God requires us to do some work rebuilding from the ruins. Sometimes... Meeting with God requires us to do some work rebuilding from the ruins. And here's the second thing. When we do the rebuilding work, we are promised that he will come in glory and peace. When we do that work, we're promised he will come in glory and shalom. All right, let's take up the first one. Rebuilding among the ruins. Sometimes meeting with God requires us to do do some work. Rebuilding among the ruins. Verse 4 from our reading today. But now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Now, these three categories, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people. Those three are repeated three times in our text today. And they represent, it's very intentional, they represent everybody. Because the the first one, Zerubbabel, represents the rulers, the governor of Israel. The second represents the priestly people of Israel. And lastly, the remnant, the returning people, all the people of Israel. So it's a way of saying, at every level, I want you to hear this. If you're in a governing role, if you're in a priestly role, if you are among the people, this is for everyone. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. When I read that, I felt like, it just felt like the sentence wasn't finished. Like, there was something just powerful about the abrupt ending, and work. And sometimes that's just what it is. It's put the hand to the plow. Do the work. Pick up the tools of the trade and get to it. Do the courageous work. 
do the hard work of starting over, of rebuilding. He says, be strong and do the work. Now, this be strong gets translated several ways. It's be courageous. It's prevail in. It is be strong, take courage, be resolute, and do the work, all you leaders, priests, and people. So the two kinds of ruins, I think, that are especially, I was thinking about this, two kinds of ruins that are especially devastating and therefore require this kind of resolute strength to rebuild. One, uh, what came to mind are things that are especially precious to us. When something that we love in which we've invested great affection is in ruins, it's so devastating, it can be demoralizing, and it can be hard to do the work of rebuilding because of how beloved it was, and therefore what a great grief we have. Think of that physically. Think of that devastating feeling if you saw images of the Notre Dame on fire. I mean, the whole world, Christian and not, their hearts just... Our hearts just sank. Something so precious, so beautiful, so beloved. Another kind of difficulty is when things are so massive in scale that it's just overwhelming. And it, it gets torn down and it's in ruins. You think, how do we ever begin? Can we ever actually accomplish this? And before we even start, we're discouraged. And I think of the work that had to be done after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. That feeling was a temptation to not keep going, keep working. And that city, over many, many years, and in some ways still, recovered. So the temple was both. It was dear to the hearts of the people, and it was an overwhelmingly complex project. And so they need this encouragement to be strong, be resolute, take courage. It's not hard to look around today, I think, and feel like some things we care about deeply are in ruins. Well, we fear, maybe, that ruin is on the horizon, whether we're at looking at the biggest global level, national level, governing institutions, democratic process. There are these cries of what is happening? Is this falling apart? Is it crumbling? Trust in the truth-telling commitments of our information and media outlets. Ecological ruin. Destruction of habitats. Species, pollution of air, oceans. The global migration of peoples is at an all-time high everywhere in the world in recent years. People seeking asylum and refugee, re refuge, refugee activity. And why is that? Because of the ruin that they're fleeing where they're from. But this sense of ruin also strikes closer to home. We might feel it, yes, in the big level, but it also could be right within our own lives, circles, hearts, homes, our health might be falling apart, our relationships might be unraveling, financial worries or family challenges can just undo us. This challenge can come to us as something as simple as failing a class at school or, or job loss or a breakup. All of these things at different levels, different scales, at different levels of, of proximity to our heart and affections, all of these things are things that can feel like they're in ruins. And there's a call to rebuild. So how do we rebuild among the ruins? What does it mean for us today to be strong, to take courage and work? 
as God says to the prophet Haggai. It means that whatever ruin you see when you look around you or, or within you, perhaps, whatever ruin you see, reject despair. Reject cynicism. Act. One of the strongest antidotes to pessimism, pessimism, cynicism, despair is action where we can, where we might have some measure of ability to make any difference no matter how small, but to use that little bit of agency we might have, or some of us a lot, that little bit of agency to do something, pick up a stone, carry it to the foundation, place it in its spot to begin rebuilding the walls. We do have agency to some degree. God's given us the ability to participate in, to influence, to make a change. Every single one of us. Maybe you're familiar with the serenity prayer. It's prayed at every Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. It goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage. Be strong. Be resolute. Take courage. The courage to change the things that I can, to not roll over in despondency, despair, cynicism, pessimism. The courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. How do we rebuild among the ruins? Take courage to change the things that you can, no matter how small your actions might seem. There's another way that we can and we must do the work even as we stand among the rubble. Just as the Israelites were creating space to meet with God, so do we create space to meet with God, to have this session with God. What do I mean? What do I mean by create space? Do I mean rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? No. I mean that the temple, the house of God, is wherever God dwells. Jesus became the temple, the living embodiment, the glory of God indwelling. Jesus himself, as God, was the place where you would, one would encounter God, the living God, the glorious and holy God. And then he says to us, after being himself, God with us in his person, then he says to us, the body, now you are the temple. As he ascended to the Father, he says, I'm sending my spirit as the presence of God, that same presence that filled every, struck everybody with awe and fear in the temple, in the tabernacle, and in Jesus himself. That very power, that glory, that's in you. You are the body of Christ, he says. So the presence of God, God with us in the literal physical body of Christ is now the presence of God in us the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. Two weeks ago, Father Bill preached that sermon on Revelation 21 that I was talking about, which says this, Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, God's home, God's house, God's dwelling place, look, is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So we can do the work 
of rebuilding amidst the rubble by creating a meeting place for the presence of God to dwell within us. You follow the logic. Creating space, creating a place for us to encounter the living God. We're doing the same work of rebuilding from the ruins. It's one of the ways that we can do the work. We're doing this, in fact, right now. You woke up this morning and said, I'm going to work. You're doing the work by creating space in your life. You could be doing a thousand other things this morning. But you're saying, this morning, I'm creating space, a temple in time, in order to meet God there and have a session with a living God. But it's not only on Sunday worship that we do it. We do it in small groups as we gather in smaller micro-communities of worship and mission. We do it in our own lives. If you have time that you just set aside, some, most people who do this, it's in the morning. It could be any time of day where you just set aside time and you create a little temple in your day, a temple of time, a temple of space, and you go there and you meet with the living God. You are doing the acts, the actions of rebuilding amidst the ruins that are all around you and maybe that you even feel like are within you, in the middle of that, you're building a temple. You're taking courage. You're being resolute. Be strong and work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord Almighty. How do we rebuild among the ruins? One, we act where we can, rejecting cynicism and despair, and take courage to work for the change that we can. Number two, we create space in our lives and community, little temples of time and place to meet the living God. All right, so I said there's two main themes. That was the first one, the first theme. Two main themes we're going to look at. We just looked at the, the first, which was sometimes meeting with God requires us to do some work rebuilding the temple. And we have to do that amidst the ruins. The second one is this. When we do the rebuilding work, we are promised he will come in glory and peace. When we do the rebuilding work, we are promised he will come in glory and peace. Verses 6 and 7 from our reading today say this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 6 told us that the desire of the nations will come as God fills his house with glory. What is that? What is the desire of the nations that will come? Verse 9, the glory of his present house, this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant shalom, glory and shalom. This is the desire of the nations. This is the desire of all peoples, glory and shalom. This is what every one of us at our hearts, whether we even use the language or not, most long for, where the shalom of God reigns, everything and everyone are in right relationship with each other. We have harmonious relationship with God. We have harmonious relationship with each other as humans and with all creation. Goodness, truth, beauty are in full display in shalom, where shalom reigns. 
And it's what every human instinctively knows is the way things ought to be. So as we rebuild among the ruins by doing the courageous work in the world, wherever we can make a change, and as we rebuild among the ruins by creating space for God, then the shalom and the glory of God will come, he says. One final word about the glory of God. This is sometimes a difficult concept for us to imagine, to conceptualize, and one of the ways uh, that we can enter into what is this, this glory of God, is another biblical phrase that you might have heard called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an essential part of, of our eyes being opened up to his glory. Now, fear of the Lord is an also confusing phrase sometimes. Um, and so let me unpack this, and I think it will, it, it will open it all up for us a bit. I read a book on sabbatical by a theologian from the Czech Republic. His name's Thomas Halleck, and he says, I want, it's entitled, I Want You to Be. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a bit of an extended quote from this. He's talking about the fear of God. He says this, The fear of God does not mean ordinary human fear, but instead that disquieting experience of God's greatness and magnificence that accompanies the fundamental religious experience, the encounter with the sacred, with that fearful and fascinating mystery. He continues, God is, let us remind ourselves again and again, the depth of reality, which is for us that radically other, absolute mystery, transcending not only everything we have ever known heretofore, but everything we could ever imagine. Those who have never experienced vertigo, now stay with me here, Pay listen to what he's saying here. This is a dense passage. He's stretching for language. He's like trying to grab the kind of language that he can wrap around this concept of, of the glory of God and the fear of the Lord. It's just so transcendent. It's so mysterious. It's beyond what we can imagine. Earlier, I didn't put this in here, but he says that our attempts to, to, to understand who God is, he is so beyond what we can even imagine that it's like a caterpillar trying to comprehend the British Museum. So he's just reaching for how do we put this into words. He says, those who have never experienced vertigo when contemplating that depth, vertigo is like dizziness. If you don't get a little dizzy when you try to contemplate God, they should probably avoid using the word God because they are in danger of using it to mean simply the gods that we manufacture in our minds and treat as we like. Isn't that powerful? The sense of being dizzy, vertigo, uh, struggling to even conceptualize the, the vastness and greatness of God, the glory of God. This is part of what the fear of God is. All right, one more big stretch and push. We can do this. Here we go. I believe, he says, that without experiencing that vertigo, that sacred awe that also reveals to us our finiteness and imperfection, any talk of God, including the love of God, is barren. It strikes me that so many pious handbooks about love of God are terribly stuffy and full of sickly sentimentality and religious kitsch because their authors probably never experienced that fall into the depth of being, that wonderment at the non-self-evidence of the world's being and of ourselves. 
that deafening crash as all our previous certainties and mental constructions collapsed when the words and images that formed the glass in the window of our soul shattered, letting air and light flood in so powerfully that we closed our eyes and gasped for breath. We were made for that. Every human on earth. Our instinctive longing is for shalom and glory. Worship is the central task of the church. I want to conclude with a statement by Archbishop of Canterbury, former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple. He's from the early 20th century. I want to read this and then I'm going to close by praying through it. He says this, what is worship? Worship is the quickening of the conscience by the holiness of God, the feeding of the mind by the truth of God, the purging of the imagination by the beauty of God, the opening of the heart to the love of God, the devotion of the will to the purpose of God. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we bring ourselves to you in total trust, and we ask that you would lighten, enlighten us, quicken our conscience by your holiness, shine a light within us and upon us in the places that we need to bring to you for reform, for confession and reform. And may this be our entrance into your presence and to worship. And would you nourish us, nourish our minds with the truth of who you are, not the idols we manufacture and might call God that are puny, but fill our minds with that sense of sacred awe, the fear of the Lord that we might close our eyes and gasp for breath as we begin to contemplate who you are. Fill our minds with the truth of who you are. Purge our imaginations with your beauty. Help us to see the world, ourselves through your eyes. Help us to notice the beauty of everything that you've made, the beauty in each other, in our own lives, and in all creation, and in the works of our hands. Open our hearts, Lord, to your love. And as our hearts are filled with your love, may it overflow to each other. May we be a people, may Christ Church be a community that loves each other, that knows true community and relationship, and that loves, may it overflow, your love within us overflow to our neighbors. And Lord, We ask that our will might be devoted to your purposes and where, Lord, we are, where we have strong wills that are more self-directed, would you show us and would you redirect us into your purposes that we might mend our world to the praise of your glory. Your name we pray. Amen.